please open up one of those uh, Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, Romans chapter 4, uh, our passage we're studying this morning is on page 1000 in the pew Bible. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, I'm going to pray. Fathers, we open your word this morning and hear your voice. Would you open our ears and open our hearts that we would both hear and receive your word, that it would fall on good soil and take root in us. Father, we praise you for this word. We need it today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been reminded of the power of a thing in a surprising way? It's something pretty common, and and you've spent a lot of time with it, and you forget how powerful it is. If you've ever accidentally used salt in a recipe where you should have used sugar, you're reminded of how powerful salt can be in the wrong amount. Or maybe you accidentally uh, mash on the gas pedal, and you forget that your car has got a little get-up-and-go in it, but you're reminded of that power in a surprising way. I had an experience like this. Once upon a time in a different place, uh, we, Melissa and I were invited to a friend's house for dinner. There were five of us couples, and we were at the home of this uh, very distinguished couple, very wonderful people, and we had a great dinner, and afterwards, um, the gentleman who was hosting us, uh, he said, uh, hey, why don't you guys come with me? I, I want to show you around. And so all of the men stood up from the table, and we went like little chubby ducklings all the way through the house and he's showing us this thing and that thing and we got down to the basement where uh, he showed us his guns and this is what men do rather than talking about our feelings or anything going on in our lives we just spit what random facts we know about random objects and so he would point to a gun and we would grunt and someone would say a fact we're like "Mm, I agree with that fact I also was aware of that fact and so he's taking us through all of them and then he pulled this really small rifle Uh, off of the wall. Uh, It looked like it was a child-sized rifle, and he explained to us, he said, this gun was given to me by my grandfather when I was a little boy. It was a 22 rifle, and uh, he talked about the great memories he had with his grandfather, uh, and he's uh, he's holding it safely, pointing it away from us while he's showing us all the intricacies of the gun, and, and it has this feature that modern rifles don't have, and this and that, and then all of a sudden, pop, that sucker went off. Have you ever felt your whole body pucker? I went, Burr! I think that's what a full body pucker is like. I mean, all of us, our eyes are huge, and... Uh, my friend who was holding the gun at the time that it went off, uh, his, just, his whole face, everything just went red, and he was mortified, and we were all frozen in fear, and he's embarrassed, and he's scared, and we're scared, and we're all thinking, where's our wives, and why did we come to the basement, and what's going on? Uh, in the wall of the basement, a little 22 bullet-sized hole lodged into the wall, and, uh, and then... Uh, my friend said, uh, oh, you want to see my World War II books? Yeah, we do. All right, let's go. And we went off for more mindless facts and nonsense conversation. Man, in just that moment, we were reminded of the power of the gun. Although this gun was small, it wasn't a toy, and it wasn't merely a memento. It was capable of really significant destruction. So It can be a surprise to us when we forget the power of a thing and then we're reminded in a surprising way. Now, when it comes to the Christian life, 
it's easy for us to forget the power of faith. Faith is a word, a concept that we are so familiar with, a term that we use so often that sometimes it almost loses its meaning to us. Faith becomes cliche when we morph it into something that just means simple belief. In this way, faith turns into nothing more than a positive answer to the question, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Yes. Well, then we assume that's faith, and then we just sort of go on with our business. However, in our study of Romans so far, Paul has been showing us the incomparable, the undisputed power of faith in Christ to utterly and eternally change a person's life. Paul's been arguing against a view of God that says people stand right in front of God by keeping a moral law or a religious law or through a religious symbol like circumcision or through identity with the Jewish people. In place of all these things, Paul is arguing that people are justified only by faith in Jesus Christ. We've used that term justified the last couple of Sundays. Let me remind you of its definition just so we're all on the same page. Justification is a once and eternal declaration from God that the person who believes on Christ is not guilty of their sin and they are credited with the righteousness of Jesus. So you remember we described it like a courtroom scene. You're guilty of your sin. The verdict's already been handed down. But Christ, your advocate, steps in. And God the Father doesn't just declare you not guilty, though He does and though that's wonderful. He he says, I'm not going to hold you accountable for your sin. I'm going to put your sin, the price of that sin, on my son. And I'm not going to give my son the credit for his righteousness. Rather, I'm going to give that credit to you. That's what it is to be justified, a once and eternal declaration from God, not guilty and credited with the righteousness of Christ. It happens at the moment of your conversion. It's not an ongoing work. It is a once and final declaration from God. Paul says we are justified by faith in Christ. Now, in chapter 4, Paul invokes a big name as a test case for justification by faith, and that name is Abraham. And you'll remember from last week, uh, Paul recalls the story of Abraham from the book of Genesis. God spoke to Abraham when Abraham was a pagan idol worshiper. And God called Abraham to leave his country and to go to an unknown land. And then God promised Abraham that he and his wife Sarah, though they were old and unable to conceive, that they would have a child and that through him, Abraham would become the father of many nations. In Genesis 15, 6, this is Paul's key verse that he keeps pointing back to, says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So again, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that in the first part of chapter 4, Paul dismantles the idea that Abraham was made righteous through the covenant symbol of circumcision. But instead, long before he cut his flesh, he believed and was declared righteous by God. And now as we finish chapter 4, Paul continues to argue for the power and effectiveness of faith in Christ, not only for our salvation, but also for our salvation life. I want your faith to be strong today. I want it to grow stronger in the Lord. And that's my goal this morning is to build your confidence in a true and powerful faith in Christ. And I want to build your confidence by showing you three successes of faith in this passage. So follow along with me as we read 
Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Here's what Paul writes. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So I want to build your confidence this morning by showing you three successes of faith. The outcome of our time together in the Word of God today should be a faith that goes from weak to strong by trusting in Christ. So here are these three successes described here in our passage. The first success is this. Faith in Jesus succeeds where the law fails. Faith in Jesus succeeds where the law fails. What law are we talking about? It could be a religious law, like the law of Moses. It could be a moral law, like the law of the land, the law of culture. Whatever that law is, faith in Jesus succeeds where the law fails. Now remember, we're picking up mid-argument with Paul here in the middle of chapter 4. He just finished telling us why faith in Jesus is superior to the covenant symbol of circumcision. And now he turns his attention back to religious law, back to moral law. And in verse 13, he makes this startling statement about Abraham. It's, this chapter has already been wild enough for the original audience, especially for a person who comes from a Jewish background. To say that Abraham's not justified by circumcision is just mind-blowing to an original reader. But now he says in verse 13, uh, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Not by the law. Paul, how can you say such a thing? You're telling me that Abraham was not right before God because he kept God's law. That's exactly what Paul's saying. What about everyone else? If I keep the Ten Commandments, am I right before God? Absolutely not. Because you don't keep them, you can't keep them, and you cannot, therefore, be right with God. Paul's saying it's faith that succeeds where the law has failed. So Abraham wasn't righteous because he did more good than bad, or because he did some religious thing or avoided some sinful thing. He believed God, and then God declared this ungodly man as righteous. The reason that Paul goes after religious law or moral law so often 
is because he knows something about his readers. His readers then and his readers now possess this fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of religious law. We think religious law makes us right before God. If I keep the law, do the thing, avoid the sin, then God will do me well. That's the conclusion of so many people. But the testimony of Scripture over and over again is that the law is not there to convince us of our righteousness, but rather to convince us of our sinfulness. We don't keep the law. We break the law, and we need a rescue that comes from beyond the law itself. And so what Paul does in this section of chapter 4 is, is he helps us understand the superiority of faith in Christ compared to the law. And he does that by giving us portraits of three different people. If you'll follow along with me, they'll become clear as we look at the text. There are three different people uh, that Paul uses to describe the superiority of faith over the law. The first person is the person who possesses the law. So this would be a, a Jewish non-believer in Paul's original audience. This person possesses the law. And look at what Paul says about them in verse 14. He says, if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. So if this person is able to achieve righteousness by observing the law, then there's no need for faith. And if there's no need for faith, then there's no need for a promise from God to be fulfilled. This would change the very nature of our relationship with God. It would become transactional. I will do good, I will do what you've commanded, and then you will give me what I've earned. But do you remember last week, earlier in chapter 4, Paul says our relationship with God is not like a relationship with an employer. You earn your paycheck, but you don't earn the gift of God. He gives salvation freely to those who believe. Not to those who have done more good than bad in, in whatever ways we measure. And so the person who possesses the law does not have faith, does not know God's grace. Therefore, they are a transgressor, and the result from God is wrath. Uh, Paul's point is that the, the, the law is not getting us where we think it does. It's rather setting us back. A person could argue, well, how could God be wrathful to me? How could God judge me? I have the law, but having it doing it, keeping it, two very, very different things. Now, the end of verse 15 can be confusing to us when we read it. it. It says this, it says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. What's Paul mean by that line? Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, here's what Paul means. In his writings, there's a difference between the word sin and the word transgression. Put very simply, a transgression is worse than a sin. Every sin is a transgression, but not every transgression, excuse me, every transgression is a sin, but not every sin is a transgression. So Paul uses the word sin to describe when a person breaks God's law, whether or not they know the law or possess the law. But he uses the word transgression when someone knows God's law and still breaks it. If we needed an example, we could say this. Uh, the person who does not know God's law and worships an idol commits sin. The person who possesses God's law, knows God's law, and still 
worships an idol, that person commits a transgression. It is a sin of a more intense degree. So Paul's point here is that the Mosaic law produces even more wrath. Rather than rescuing people from the sentence of condemnation, it confirms their condemnation. So by stating clearly and in great detail exactly what God requires of people, the law renders people even more accountable to God than they were without the law. The argument in, with Paul's imaginary objector has been, well, I have the law, so God will do me well. And Paul says, no, you have the law, you don't obey it, you're a transgressor, and God's wrath will be poured out on you more faithfully, more intensely. You're not okay. You're in real danger of eternal judgment. Person one has the law, transgresses, and meets the wrath of God. Person two does not have the law, yet they sin, and they too will meet the wrath of God. We hear that plainly in chapter 1, verse 18. But then there's the third person, and the third person is the person of faith. Verse 16, this is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants. So the person whose faith is in Jesus is not a sinner anymore, nor are they a transgressor. They are forgiven and declared righteous. And how are they declared righteous? Again, not by covenant symbols, not by religious law, but by the incredible grace of God. And the result of this faith is not God's wrath, but it's God's blessing. It's God's promise fulfilled. It's the inheritance that he has promised to his people. So we get this incredible portrait of God here, a God of incredible grace and kindness and compassion. I love how John Stott summarized these verses. He said, law and promise belong to different categories of thought which are incompatible. Law language, you shall, demands our obedience. But promise language, I will, demands our faith. What God said to Abraham was not, obey this law and I will bless you, but I will bless you, believe my promise. What an incredible God we belong to. It's incredible when we let the Bible show us a portrait of God rather than just run with our own imaginations. Too many people imagine God to be a tyrant and a taskmaster. He's always mad. He's always disappointed. He's always far away, always angry. But if we only knew what the Bible says about God, then you would see that he's a God of blessing and he's a God of promise. He's a God of grace, a God of radical grace. You may have this idea in your head that, that if you turn to God, He may or may not accept you depending on how much good you've done. Well, let me clear it up for you. You have not done anything good, and He loves you. His promise is, I will not turn away anyone who turns to me. Oh, He'll take you. He'll accept you. He'll receive you and clean you and love you, declare you not guilty, declare you the righteous one with the righteousness of Christ. God operates in such amazing grace. And if God operates in such amazing grace, then what should his church look like? If the church is a place where rules are made and kept and where only one type of person is welcome, then we're not living out this principle taught in Romans chapter 4. I'm confident I've told this story before. Act like it's the first time. Once upon a time... Another church, another state, 
a man wandered into our sanctuary one morning and several mornings after that, and he wore a hat. He wore a hat in the building and in the sanctuary. And for whatever reason, I don't understand where it comes from, but in that place, uh, we were, there were a lot of people who were anti-hatters in the sanctuary. It was seen as an offense to God. It, it was a lack of decorum. It was inappropriate. And so there was a conversation among some lay leaders in our church. I was a part of that conversation about whether or not this man should be allowed to wear his hat in the sanctuary anymore because it was offensive. And so the conversation meandered around, uh, and finally someone recommended, well, what if, what if we let him wear it in the lobby, but we make him take it off when he walks into the sanctuary? Man-made rules on top of man-made rules. No one asked his name. No one asked his story. I knew both of those things. And so I told him his name, and I told him his story, how he had been in and out of programs for treating his drug addiction and how he's battling for sobriety right now and how he had to walk to church because he didn't have a car and how that hat was one of the nicest things he owned and so he wore it with pride and honor and great dignity and, and that we ought to be praising God when this guy showed up instead of playing the Pharisee because he wore a hat in the church. Instead of telling him, take off your hat, we should be telling people, take off your shoes. This is holy ground where God is meeting a broken sinner. So what does it profit a man if he takes off his hat but loses his soul? And yet all the time, churches play by stupid, man-made rules that add nothing to a person's eternity or sanctification. Because faith is better. It succeeds where law always fails always and every time. No kind of law makes us children of God. Faith alone succeeds where the law fails. We want to be that kind of person? We're that kind of church. We celebrate faith in Christ above man-made rules. So faith in Christ succeeds where the law fails. There's another success of faith in this passage. Faith in Jesus succeeds where sight objects. We see something in our logic, our assessment of a situation tells us one thing. Faith succeeds over and above our own assessment. Faith in Jesus succeeds where sight objects. So not only is faith in Christ more effective than observing the law, more effective than trusting our own assessment of things. And Paul helps us see this in Abraham's life in two ways, by describing the God that Abraham believed in, and then by describing the situation that Abraham was facing. So what was Abraham's God like? Well, the God that Abraham believed in, our God, Paul describes in verse 17 this way. He says, the God Abraham believed in is the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Now, when you give life to something that's dead, that's called resurrection. And when you call into existence things that don't exist, that's called creation. Abraham's God, our God, is the God of resurrection, the God of creation, the God of life. Now, when God came to Abraham with the promise that he would be the father of many nations, Abraham's facing a pretty serious situation. You see, Abraham and Sarah are both extremely old, around 100 years old, far too old to have a baby. And not only that, uh, they're infertile. They've never been able to conceive. And so in verse 18, Paul says this. He says, Abraham believed, hoping against hope. 
so that he became the father of many nations. What's that phrase mean, hoping against hope? Well, it means that Abraham was employing a hope in God that superseded any hope or desire in himself. He has this wish, perhaps, or he and Sarah have had this, this desire to have children, and, and they want it to come to pass. And they look at themselves, and they see the situation, and there's just no way this is going to happen. Their assessment of things is faulty, and so against that hope, they hope in the Word of God. God has given a word. He has given a promise. He's going to hope in that word above what he sees, what he recognizes. We've talked about hope a lot in our church, that Christian hope is not like making a wish. We use those terms interchangeably to say, I wish something happens or I hope something happens. It effectively means the same thing in the way we use those words. But Christian hope is so different. It's not a wish for some imaginary outcome. It is confidence that God will do what he has promised. That's Christian hope. He hoped against hope. He put his confidence in the word of God, what God had promised that God would do. Even though looking at the situation, the details said different. When the promise was made, Abraham was confident God would keep that promise. And how confident was he? Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham didn't avoid the absurdity of the situation. He was aware of his age and Sarah's age and their infertility. And Paul, ever the wordsmith, says Abraham was good as dead and Sarah's womb also good as dead. There's a reason Paul was a tent maker and not a greeting card writer. <laughs> Still, the, the point is really well made, though. Abraham could have looked at his situation and used his assessment of things to negate the promise of God. But instead, what's he do? Look at verse 20. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to do. So he didn't grow weak in unbelief, but he was strengthened in his faith. He believed the word of God over his own assessment of the situation. And what was the result? Well, Sarah became pregnant, and she had a baby. And the God of resurrection and life brought his promise to fruition in the life of this child, Isaac. When I think of God as the God of resurrection and life, I'm taken to John chapter 11. You remember what happens in John chapter 11? Jesus and the disciples have traveled to a village called Bethany, and that's where Jesus' dear friend Lazarus died four days prior. Jesus has made his intentions clear. He's going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. His disciples didn't believe it. And the people who were present that day didn't believe it because science is science. In the 21st century, and the same in the 1st century, dead people are dead. Dead people don't rise from the dead, especially not four days after. So no one believes what Jesus has said. They look at the situation, they've got their conclusion in front of them. 
Lazarus' own sister, Martha, when Jesus arrived, she ran up to him and she chastised him for not being there earlier in order to heal Lazarus, to save him from death. And Jesus responded to her, your brother will rise again. Jesus meant that very day. But Martha seemingly corrects Jesus. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Do you remember how Jesus replied? He said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And just a few moments later, Lazarus walked out of that tomb. Now, raising Lazarus from the dead was a great miracle. But it was not the greatest miracle. It was a teaching tool to show the greater resurrection that Christ gives to those who put their faith in him. Lazarus is just a springboard to this greater eternal truth that anyone, everyone who believes in Jesus will know resurrection and life through him. Our eyes tell us that Lazarus will stay dead but Jesus kept his promise. Our eyes tell us Abraham and Sarah can't have a child, but God kept his promise. Our eyes tell us a sinner can't be saved through faith, but God justifies the ungodly. He creates out of the nothingness of our empty sinful lives a new, vibrant, spiritual life. And, and this is what we have in common with Abraham and Martha and all these others. We look at our situations with such dismay and despair. We look at the world around us and we wring our hands and, and, and we grieve at the condition of things. And there's much to be grieved for sure. But in so doing, we let sight, we let our assessment dictate the reality of things rather than trusting in the word from God that prevails. If I'm a high school student or a college student and I find myself in a classroom or in a friend group, where Christianity is being put on blast, where Christians are being called homophobic, misogynistic, hate-filled, bigoted. I'm going to hold firm to the word from God, no matter what the instructor says, no matter what my peers say. I've got a word from the God of resurrection and life. I'm going to hold firm to him, not just to endure those negative comments, but also to respond in the powerful love of Christ. I'm going to believe the word of God so much, I will love my enemies. I will pray for those who want to do me harm. I will trust him. I will obey him. That's what I'm going to do. Or perhaps I find myself in a crisis moment, and I look at the situation, and I respond with a, a white, hot panic in fear, worry, anxiety, everything, I can come to the Lord. I've got my assessment of things, but I'm going to trust the Word of God who says all things are for your good and for my glory. I'm going to trust that Word. I'm not going to trust in my circumstances. I'm not even going to trust in my own assessment of the situation because who am I to say what should happen next in my life? Who am I to tell God, God, here's the right way to fix what's wrong? Instead, we are the ones to sit with him and say, we love you and we trust you and we're with you and we don't know what's happening or why, but we know you're going to make this right. 
Look, if my faith hinges on my word to God, that God must do what I've told him to do, in Jesus' name, amen, I'm setting myself up for disappointment. That's not faith. That's an employer-type relationship with God. God, I'll tell you what to do, and now I need you to go do this. Go be my heavenly errand person. Go do what I've told you to do. That's not faith. Faith says I've got a word from God. And in spite of all the emptiness in my life, the brokenness I'm facing, the crisis I'm in today, I'm going to hold firm to him. His promises are true and trustworthy, and our faith in Christ succeeds where our sight and our reason fails. Faith succeeds where the law fails. Faith succeeds where our sight objects. Finally, faith in Jesus succeeds for all who believe. So here, verses 22 through 25, we come to Paul's concluding statement in this chunk of argument. In verse 22, he says that since Abraham believed, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It'll be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. In my imagination, purely imagination, I imagine that at this point in the letter, as it's being read to the church in Rome, when this group of people, a combination of people from Jewish backgrounds and Gentile backgrounds, when they hear the words of Paul say that this was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us, I think there's a praise break. I think there's clapping. I think there's hallelujahs. I think there's praise God. I think people are rejoicing that Abraham is our father. His faith is our faith. His God is our God. This is good news. It's more than that. It's great news. Paul's just finished telling us about the quality of Abraham's faith. It was strong and not weak. But now he begins to tell us about the content of Abraham's faith and, and therefore the content of our faith. What's the content of our faith? The content of our faith is the person of Christ crucified and risen again. And why Jesus? Why is he the one we put our faith in? Well, because we're told in verse 25, Jesus is the one who was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for the sake of our justification. It's a really interesting word choice by Paul. And he's such a clever writer. He says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. That phrase, delivered, he used that earlier back in chapter 1, and you might remember in this one single paragraph, he uses that phrase three consecutive times to describe the sinfulness of humanity. God delivered them over, delivered them over, delivered them over to their sin, an ominous repetition in chapter 1. We were delivered over to our sin, but here in verse 25, Jesus is delivered up for our trespasses, and he's raised from the dead so that we might be justified. That which we were delivered over to, Christ delivers us from through the gift of his own body where he dies in our place for our sin. And, and what's the payoff of this? What's the payoff of this faith in Jesus Christ? Well, just consider all that Paul's described as belonging to the believer by faith just in this section alone. We receive righteousness and justification and inheritance and promises fulfilled and the sure hope of God and the grace of God. And who's it for? It's for everyone who believes. That's the good news that drives the mission of the church. 
Having read this chapter, we shouldn't conclude just by patting each other on the back and saying, we did it. Rather, we should open the door and yell, hey, have you heard this? Have you you seen what this says? For all who believe, why do the members of this church give to our missions fund generously, faithfully? And why do we partner with missionaries? And why do we believe in church planting and church revitalization? Why did we bless people who several years ago went to help start Life Community Church in Braintree? And those dear friends of ours who went and replanted First Baptist Church of Situate. And why are we blessing those who are soon going to launch Emmanuel Church in Weymouth? It's because we believe that the gospel is good news for all who believe. And God still has people in this city, in these towns, who have not yet heard. But upon hearing, they will believe. And in other parts of this world, who when they hear, they will believe. And we need gospel-preaching churches and gospel-saturated people to see that work come to fruition. Because faith in Christ succeeds in bringing salvation to everyone who believes. So if I'm you... I want to ask myself this morning, do I believe in Jesus Christ? If if I had to argue my case before God, what would I argue? I'm good. I'm patriotic. I'm a veteran. I pay my taxes. I, I, I was baptized at some point in my... What argument would you make? The only argument that suffices is to say, I trust in Jesus Christ who was delivered up for my sin. And raised again for my justification. My faith is in him and him alone. I have nothing to argue on my own part. I'm better than some people. I'm not as good as others. That doesn't mean anything. All I can do is plead the blood of Christ for my salvation. And there, my friend, you find your justification. Not through good deeds of your own as if God's your employer, but... It's the free gift of grace from the God who loves you and has called you to himself. And so this morning, Paul has shown us the success of faith, reminded us of how powerful it is. It's faith in Christ that succeeds where the law fails. And faith in Christ succeeds where our sight objects. And faith in Christ succeeds for all who believe. People of faith are people who know the grace of God. And people of faith are people who have confident hope in the word of God. And people of faith are people who live to make him known so that all people can hear and believe. So let me ask you this question. What condition is your faith in today? In verse 19, he tells us faith can be weak. Verse 20, faith can waver. Would that describe your faith in Christ this morning, either because of sin, apathy in your life, maybe because of some situation or crisis you're facing? What do you do in response to that? Here's my encouragement to you. My encouragement is if your faith is weak and you want it to be strengthened, then I want you to respond to God's word with confident obedience. I want you to respond to God's word. Rather than your own assessment of things, your take on the situation, I want you to open the word of God and I want you to hear his voice. You have to get this in you. 
When the crisis looms large, all we hear is terror and fear and hopelessness. And that's the right time for us to sit down and open these pages and not get up until I've got a word from the Lord. I have to know what God is saying to me in this moment and for this situation. We have to respond to God's word, not, not to my desired outcome. And that's hard. We, we have such good desired outcomes for the situations we're facing. And we think to ourselves, well, why wouldn't God want this good thing that I want? But God doesn't want the things that we determine to be good. He, he wants the best things, the greatest things that he has planned and put in place for us. And that comes through all kinds of surprising ways. Remember, it took his own son to the cross. So I got I to gotta get the word in me. I have to hear from the Lord, and, and I want to respond to this word with confidence, with hope, and that hope is very open-handed. I'm not dictating what God must do. I'm coming to God and saying, you be God to me. You do what only you can do. God of resurrection and life, I leave this in your hands. There are people who sell books and people who have preaching platforms that will tell you this about faith. They will tell you that faith is a creative force and they are wrong. Faith does not create the outcome. Faith endures until the outcome is accomplished by God's will and His good grace. And so how many times have you felt... I'm in this situation because I don't believe enough. Maybe someone even told you, well, something's wrong with your faith, and that's why you're going through this situation. That's non-biblical garbage. Faith doesn't create the outcome. Faith trusts the God of outcomes. It endures. And so I want to put my confident, open-handed hope in God. I, I don't know what God will do in this situation, but I know what he can do. I don't know his circumstantial will, but I know his revealed will I'm going to respond to God's word with confident obedience. Sometimes the sign of a strong faith is obedience to the clear call of God. And that's how it worked for Abraham. That's how it's worked for so many of God's people. How do we know that Noah was a man of faith? He built the ark. How do we know that Moses was a man of faith? He raised his staff and the waters parted. How do we know that David was a boy of faith. He slung the rock and the giant fell. Obedience is evidence of faith. And that's what it was for Abraham as well. So I want you to listen closely as I read this description of Abraham's obedient faith from Hebrews chapter 11. Listen closely. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, 
But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So brothers and sisters, may we hope against hope in the promises of God until the day that our faith becomes sight in that eternal city. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word to us. We need this. We confess that our faith is often and easily weakened. It wavers at unbelief, wavers at unfaith. And so, Lord, we need you this morning to help us in our unbelief. Father, give us courage to repent from the sin that breaks our faith. Give us the courage to trust you in the crisis that makes our knees buckle. And though we don't know the outcome, though we don't know what's going to happen next, Lord, let us trust in you and your good word to us. Father, we believe and we trust and we rely on you. Give us a hope against hope, a hope against wishing, a hope that endures by your eternal word. Father, open the eyes of faith of someone in here this morning who's hearing and for the first time believing. Lord, thank you for your resurrection work in their life. May it be so as they turn to Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.